You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to stop and answer some listener questions. And we thank you so much for sending these through and putting them on reviews, which is brilliant. What we're going to cover is firstly, you know, should you be investing in the outskirts or investing in the inner rings of the capital cities? We're going to talk about what happens if the builder runs away with your money during a renovation. One question was around a financial planner that's becoming a little bit too pushy, pushing wrong properties, which is actually happening with a client at the moment as well. And finally, we're going to talk about commercial property trusts, whether they're a good idea for you to invest in, and if you are, what you should do. Thank you so much for sending in your questions and feedback, and we're going to be tackling more of your questions in future episodes. We'll also look for guests who can share specific knowledge when we have more complex problems thrown at us, so keep them coming. Before we get started... Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. So our first question is from Prasanna. I hear a constant theme in your show about buying in the inner ring of Sydney. Cameron Kusher at CoreLogic has done some work on capital appreciation over the last 20 years in Sydney, and it seems as if it is the outer areas like Liverpool and its surrounding suburbs have performed best in terms of capital growth. With the second airport coming in Badgerys Creek, won't that trend continue? I live in Bellevue Hill, and I can't see buying in the inner ring for investment with such low yields as great long-term investments. Won't the periphery outperform in the long run percentage-wise, even though it might be a bumpy ride getting there? Good question. There is a second question at the end of this. And he said, the second question is, can you do an episode on the so-called prestige end of the Sydney market and its future prospects? So uh, we'll tackle that a little bit in this uh, answer. Um, And that's a good idea for a future episode. So thank you for Prasanna. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? There's lots of ways we can start on this. I mean, I mean, your, your biggest problem, whenever you're thinking about investments, I think the easiest way to think about it is supply and demand. And, um, you know, that's the, the, the two fundamentals that make it. And the, the, the problem with these areas is that, you know, there isn't really a cap on supply, really. And they, so you, your, your foundations there is already flawed. Um, and then the second thing is the demand, you know, and this is where I think that these prices have gone up so much because the demand's been a little bit different to, you know, what people think. I think what's really important always is to understand what goes into median price data. And this is what is used when uh, you will read in the papers or when you look at these reports in terms of suburbs that have gone up or gone down, what they're using to determine that is the median price generally. Now, what goes into the median price? Well, generally is a median price for houses and there's one for units. So every suburb has one of each. And with houses, when you're looking at outer areas in Sydney, there has been some extraordinarily huge growth in prices. And the reason for extraordinary growth in prices is zoning changes. Now, when we interviewed Luke Metcalf, Luke Metcalf is a data scientist, and it was really interesting because he uses a combination of AI and his own methodologies, his own understanding to really dig into 
what is the primary driver in terms of prices? And without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, he comes back and says, zoning changes is the number one top of the list thing to look for if you're looking for a big upswing in prices. But it's a one-off. That zoning changes, those prices go up once. And they can go up a lot. And if you're looking at historic data and that zoning change happened, say, in the last 10 years, then that's going to be reflected. And it's going to look like that or houses in that area go up or have gone up an enormous amount of money and there's been enormous growth. Well, it's not actually the house. It's the land and it's because the use changed. So if you have a street of houses, say they're, you know, a post-war house for argument's sake, a really ordinary little box of fibro box for argument's sake on a nice big block of land and the council decides to zone that area differently which means that you can build uh, townhouses or apartments on those blocks of land as those houses become less and less desirable it gets to a critical point where the block of land is worth a lot more to a developer particularly if you band up with your neighbours and then you sell that that house it's still an individual lot when you sell it it might then get amalgamated into a development site and, and or completely, you know, new um, subdivision done. But when you sell it, that price that you get individually goes in as a, a sale price and that makes it look like the prices for houses in that area are going through the roof. And I think it's really important to understand that. So when you're just looking at top line data and you're not sort of digging beneath and saying, okay, what is in those, what is the composition of that data? you know, then you you do run risk of making these decisions based on, well, that's really where the growth is on going out there without understanding that. Another classic, you know, I just read in the, in the Herald a couple of weeks ago and the Herald... Didn't think you read the Herald. Oh, I've, I read, you know, I can't help it. I get it delivered on a Saturday morning. <laughs> I read the Herald and every quarter they have this thing and it's like the top performing suburbs and the bottom performing suburbs and they've got four tables, they've got two... For units, two for houses, it's the top 20 performers, the top 20 um, underperformers, right? So the top performer for units, for instance, was Kiriwi at 15.5% growth, right? So this is at a time when the whole of Sydney has seen price falls of 10% and yet Kiriwi unit prices have gone up 15%. Why do you think that is the case, Chris? I'll just ask you, you can just take a stab at it. Well, I mean, there's lots of new developments, right, that are more expensive than their current Units. Yep. And so, you know, if you put that into the data and then you look at the median, you're going to see that the price is going to jump. And, you know, that could be, I'm surprised places like Gosford, for example, like there's new developments going in there and, you know, the units are really cheap. And then these new developments are 150, 200 grand more. And so, wow, it looks like Gosford units have gone up. Well, yeah. no, there's just been a bunch of new stock hit in the market. Yeah. I think, you know, if you're investing, and you can invest in these areas, it's not like there's always opportunities everywhere, you know, and I guess it's, but if you were going to think, how would you play the western suburbs of Sydney if you were going to invest? And I reflect on one client who has done an amazing job there and, you know, what he, he works in development. So, you know, it's not insider trading, but he kind of knows how development process works with councils. He's worked with councils before and um, what he did is he bought, you know, where he knows it's going to get rezoned in 10 years' time. And so this is 10 years now. So he bought five years ago. So it's, he's had a 15 years and he's bought a huge block of land with a house for his family. Um, he's bought it for about a million. It's probably worth three now. Um, you know, in 10 years time, it might be worth 10 mil, right? That's his numbers, right? So what, but he's, he's going to have to live there. He's going to live there for 15 years with his family and he's commuting, you know, over an hour and a half to work each day. 
Um, you know, it suits him from a lifestyle point of view. He loves it, but the big payoff for him is when he's looking to retire and this is roughly going to hit his retirement, he's going to be able to sell it to a developer. Now, the other people who would have done well out of this situation are the people who had big blocks in Liverpool, you know, and had the, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 square meter blocks, but they would have had an old house on there, you know, and they may have lived in there and that's great. They've got a huge kind of payoff, but for an investor to buy that, um, you know, you would have had a really low yield. I mean, or had maybe tenant problems and great foresight to see that. Um, and so there was lots of risk when you bought it and that it might not have happened. And so you got this big reward from it. So I guess, you know, when you look at it on paper right now, there's also been a huge boom um, that has pushed up prices. So, you know, that kind of head, that tailwind that pushed prices up isn't really there anymore. So you haven't got really you know, collapsing of interest rates, free flowing of credit, um, you know, huge FOMO in the market that pushed every first home buyer and developer. So when you look at the numbers now, I think what will be much more interesting when you look at those numbers in say three or four years time when credit's tighter, interest rates are maybe a bit higher, you know, first home buyers aren't there. And I mean, that's another point in this discussion, discussion is that, you know, when the government comes in and gives first home owner grants, they put a cap on it. And that makes people shop in a certain area. And a lot of the units in these kind of outskirts are benefiting from state government policy that um, is really just kind of artificially inflating prices because it's artificially creating this new demand that, you know, will run out of steam at some point. And so that, that, that's affecting the unit prices. The thing is with, um, and, and back to the rezoning thing, when we spoke to Kate Lumby, and I think that was episode four, so these are I'm really going back to some very early episodes here, but, and, and she's a real estate agent out there in the Dural area, you know, past the hills. And, and she was talking about some of the people that are basically multimillionaires um, as a consequence of selling their market gardens or their, mar- you know, their small farms, yep. their acreage, because, you know, the development that's gone on out there, but also there's a train line and there's all these sort of uh, infrastructure developments that have encouraged demand in the areas. And then there's a zoning that goes along hand in hand with that, or the rezoning that goes hand in hand with that, which has then had this massive Im- improvement to land values. And it's the highest and best use, you know, in the in the sense that owners are, are then going to get to a point, particularly when they're heading, looking at retirement, they're saying, well, actually, my house is worth more as a development site than it is as a house. And you're going to find that individual buyers who might want another, a house in that area aren't going to want to buy that house anyway because, A, they can't afford to compete with a developer, and, B, if all the neighbours uh, do sell to developers, you're going to have one house in the middle of a whole bunch of apartments and townhouses. You know, so there's an, an entire change to an area. So it's sort of at the beginning of it is the rezoning. At the end of it is what is creating the demand for the end product, as mm-hmm. Chris was just talking about there and is is that sustainable or is that artificially inflated and is that subject to policy change and 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 if that's the case and if you've got endless supply or a lot of supply you've got demand only from a limited market and a limited buy pool and we talked about that particularly in one of our episodes in the 30s I really should have a list here shouldn't I when we spoke to Jared McCabe who's mm-hmm. a buyer's agent from Melbourne and, and he really spoke a lot about this idea of multifaceted buy pool and so the reason the inner suburbs do so well is because there's a multifaceted buy pool that means there's a lot of different types of buyers that are in the market at any given time that will be prepared to fight for and and, and compete for quality property. And so when you've got a finite resource, i.e. limited supply, limited 
um, land availability and limited de- development within that because basically everything's already been developed, then then that's protecting your asset yeah. over time. And then when you've got in, you know a constant uh, demand or a constant supply of people who want to buy that property, yep. then that is why these inner areas do particularly well. In terms of the yield, one of the reasons the yield is low in inner areas is because prices are more robust and do grow at a greater rate on a consistent basis than outer areas. Yep. Um, and that is one of the reasons why there is pressure on the yield, because you do have to pay a premium to buy in these areas. And if you're focusing on yield when it comes to property investment, we would caution you not to. You know, at Cash flow is important. We get that you've got to get something from it to help you continue to pay for the privilege of owning this investment, but the long game is capital growth. And if you're focusing on yield and you're buying purely because you get a higher yield, then you are taking on a lot more risk than you probably realise, and we would not encourage that. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a few points here that I want to kind of talk about. The first point around the yield while we're there is that um, yield isn't something that's stuck forever. You know, yield changes every year. Now, if you buy a property and say got, and this is happening in Sydney with prices coming down a little bit and rents in good property, some going up, the yield's getting better now. So you're starting to get yields in the threes and fours in houses in Sydney. So yields change. The other way a yield change is, you know, if your yield goes down, sometimes that's a good thing because it means that the property value is going up. And so you, if you've got a property and you're getting a lower yield, that's sometimes because the capital value is going up and that's a good thing. That's what you want. But sometimes you can get an increasing yield um, just because you're putting your rent up every year. Now, if the price of the property goes up, that means that less people can afford to buy. And then that means that more people are having to afford to, to rent the property. And then that means that rents for that area generally go up. So the more that house prices go up, the more people are forced to rent and then that pushes rents up. So what ends up happening is, is that, you know, if you don't get capital growth, you don't get rental growth. And so when it, when you go chasing yield, it's very hard to put your rent up on if the capital value doesn't go up. So when you people go chase, you know, positively geared property, is they'll buy a property, you know, that's maybe worth 500000 and they're getting five fifty, six hundred $600 a week rent. Well, it's very hard to put that rent from $600 a week to seven fifty dollars a week because the person will just turn around and say, well, I can buy this thing for $500,000. And so unless the per capital value goes up, you can't generally put your rent up. Now, with the, the western suburbs of Sydney, you did mention around kind of the airport and things like that. I think long term, you know, an airport will be great, you know, but, uh, you know, you need a lot of people to build an airport, but do you need a lot of people to work there in a in an AI world where you self-check-in and, um, and things like that? I don't know whether the jobs that it'll create at the airport is probably as big as people think. But secondly, if it does become quite successful, it does create an employment hub and, and opportunities, you know, unfortunately that, you know, go to, you know, a certain part of the population that will do really well and have very high incomes. Now, the key parts of the Western suburbs of the Sydney is where did those people want to live? So if you've got, you know, a higher incomes coming to the area, what pockets of the Western suburbs of Sydney would they want to live in? Now, generally speaking, they're going to want to like live in the more prestige, the bigger blocks, the states that maybe are acreage. Um, they're going to want to maybe live in the Blue Mountains. Um, there'll be certain pockets in the Western suburbs of Sydney where the naturally the higher income families will gravitate towards. And then all those areas where there's just, you know, house and land packages and things like that, that's not where they're going to want to live. So if you are going to invest out in those areas, I would go for the areas that are extremely special, have something unique and really suit the kind of high income families. 
I'd be saying too, you know, with an airport, let's, let's just think about this. Do people suddenly flock out and go, oh, yes, I'm going to go out there and live there because there's an airport there now. Yeah. I mean, is it really going to drive people to move there? And I would think that it, it would increase the, I guess, the level of amenity in the area. Yeah, you don't have to go all the way to Mascot when you want to get out of the country. But, you know, really, let's just be careful about that because, you know, not all infrastructure is the same. And, you know, we've had many episodes where we've spoken to researchers around this. And so I guess we all like to think that infrastructure means prices go up. And I just think that we need to have a little bit more critical thinking around it. Mm. And once again, and you touched on it earlier, Chris, when you're talking about people who, you know, developers that are buying some of these rezoned um, houses, for instance, and sitting on them for a long time waiting, or, or, or I should say developers buying properties that are expected to be rezoned, mm. shall we say, and sitting on those properties for a long time and incurring the risk, uh, incurring the cost, um, and also in that particular case with that person, you're talking about actually living a long way from probably where they would probably prefer to live in order, all in order of a future long game, big payoff, right? Now, that's risk versus reward. And when you're talking about a big payoff like that, if it's a calculated risk and you've done all your research and you're prepared to invest in that and wait because it is a time game, mm. then, um, you know, knock yourself out, go and do it. But if you're just looking at the top line numbers and thinking, well, prices have gone up in the past, yeah. they're going to go up in the future, then then you're not looking at it with the same eyes and the same level of, of insight as that person taking that risk. You've got to also think too, if you are taking risk, with property, there's got to be the promise of a potential yep. big payoff, yep. right? People are taking risk every single day buying property and mm. not, A, not realising it's risky, but B, with absolutely no massive potential payoff. Now, that that potential for rezoning is a huge one and that is something that a lot of people have made a lot of money yep. out of, but you have to be super, super, super careful. Yeah, you've really got to have the insights of the development game and really be ahead of the crowd. You've got to be the first fish there when there's no other fish. And then, but you know, by the time everyone else comes, it's something called the greater fool theory. So, you know, you buy knowing that at some time someone's going to pay more than you. And the big problem with the development game, you have to get out and don't get greedy before everyone else gets out. And this is what's happening in Sydney, Melbourne now, is the party's over and, you know, developers aren't really getting the approvals, they can't get the pre-sales, they can't get the finance. And so, you know, they're not going to pay the amount of money for the land. And my biggest worry that's going to unwind over the next two or three years who are people who have gone out and invested in the probably the western suburbs and in the far east of Melbourne as well. Um, because, you know, young families have gone there because they're, had to go there because of affordability. And what they've, you know, sometimes done is purchased in the middle and outer rings and they're purchased at really high prices because they've seen massive rises and they've had this FOMO. But what they didn't realise is they were competing with developers and they were at auctions and, you know, they've gone and paid a million dollars for, a, you know, a house on a 600 square metre block um, because they were fighting you know, hammer and tong with a developer and those developers now aren't buying out there. And so now you've only got first home buyers. And, um, you know, I just reflect on my Nana's house as a prime example. It's 35 k's from the city in Melbourne. I remember having a conversation with my pa actually. Um, and you know, it was worth roughly 500 grand and, um, you know, we we're talking about it and we came back, you know, having a conversation a few years later. Um, and it was probably worth 1.1. And, you know, this is just a standard house. On a, it needs to be knocked down on a 600 square metre block. It was going to, the reason it's worth 1.1 is because they were going to 
someone would buy it and put three townhouses on it. Now, in that area now, there's no one putting townhouses up anymore. They can't sell them and it's probably only worth 800 you know. So if, if you know, they did try to sell when it was worth 1-1, there is a risk that a first-home buyer was going to buy at that point and, you know, they're the ones who potentially could have lost now two, 300 grand because the developers have gone out of the market. So you just have to be really careful when you, you're investing in these areas and you, you have to be a little bit smarter than, you know, everyone else for investing out there and there's, there is a lot more risk for the reward. So I think just fundamentally for a quality property, you need shortage of supply and you only have to look at the land that's available the further out you get from any city to realise that there's no shortage of a supply. So, and that's really one of the biggest uh, issues there. So if you're buying to speculate because you yourself are going to be the developer or sell to a developer, that's a very different proposition yep. to if you are buying the house that's completed thinking that prices are going to continue to rise out there because they're two extraordinarily different animals. Yeah, and just to find when to actually look at supply and what's available. This is what I love about you know obviously the internet and technology. Uh, I'm addicted to like Google Earth. I always just go straight into Google Maps. I go straight onto satellite, and I will go and have a look at those areas on a satellite. And you will be blown away. We haven't got a housing problem in Sydney or available land out there, there is millions of houses and townhouses that could be built in the western suburbs of Sydney. We're not going to have a shortage of housing for a long, long time. <laughs> so part B of Prasanna's question was around the prestige or lifestyle part of this market. And look, fundamentally, uh, you know, if you go back to episode 37, Frank Gelbrot, now he talked about the prestige end of the property market. Now in Sydney, he's talking around, he said around 6 million and up mm -hmm. for a house um, or even an apartment, I guess. He says that long term, these properties do perform better than the rest of the market. However, the volatility is much, much greater. Okay. So it's regular. You will see these halving in value and then you'll suddenly see them tripling in value. And the reasons behind that and, and I definitely encourage you to go back to the Frank Gilbert episode. Now, he's uh, he calls himself a forecaster with a long memory because he's been around for decades. And so there's an amazing wealth of information there. But it, fundamentally what's going on there, if you've got a smaller pool of buyers and those buyers, uh, their personal wealth is subject to a whole bunch of stuff, you know, the macro, it, yeah. you know, the actual macro um, uh, economics, it, it, what's happening in the American share market, what's yeah. happening in their own businesses, you know, mining and technology. There's just so many different things that can impact on the ability of a, a very high net worth individual to be able to shell out $6 million or more on a property. And so for that reason, that end of the market can be uh, much more volatile than the rest of the market. And however, he said, and I'm not going to argue with him because he's the one with the history and the data, he says that long term, they do better than everything else. It's just you've got to go through and wear those ups and downs. Yeah. I mean, end of the day, it's supply and demand. And, you know, property's got such a big lifestyle element to it that when people do do well and they've had a business or they've, you know, it's old family wealth, et cetera, naturally people want to do something with that money and they want to buy lifestyle assets. That's why they go and buy a yacht. That's why they go and, you know, you know, and property is, is one of the things that naturally when you've got a hundred million, you know, or you've got 50 million, you're going to go and put it into assets. And generally you put it in, a lot of it put, comes into housing. And so what ends up happening is the problem is with those people is that a lot of their wealth does fluctuate. You only have to look at rich lists and you can see that, you 
you know, people's wealth can halve in a year or it can double in a year because a lot of it's, you know, subject to inflation, you know, exchange rates and how business performance and it's very much driven by confidence. And it's, so I guess with that market is um, we'd love to get someone on and I've actually tried to reach out to a, you know, a number of real estate agents that work in the prestige market and we'll, we'll try to get someone on because I think there's lots of elements to it. But fundamentally, it's a shortage of supply. There's only so many on the market at one point in time. And if you've got, you know, five to 10 million to spend, you're really only choosing from a handful of properties. And if you really so want- a handful of buyers as well, that's the thing. It, it, and a lot of this stuff do, does trade off market because of that. Yeah, and I guess there's, there's a handful of buyers, but a handful of properties. And I guess it's um, that's where the real estate agent starts to do the smoke and mirrors to, uh, to make sure that there's a feeling of scarcity there um, to push the price up. So we've got a second question. Chris, do you want to do the honours? So the second question is from Pete Poiter. Um, what happens to poor property owners when a builder pissed off with your money <laughs> and doesn't conclude the build, but the banks still want their interest payments, even if you don't have a complete build? It's a cracking question, Pete, and thank you for sending it in. What a nightmare. Yeah. And that was uh, Pete's language, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, I mean... I guess the the problem that I can firstly worries me as a mortgage broker is is the bank's given the money to the builder and the builder hasn't you know done the work. Now, I don't think that that's the case. I think that maybe the bank's given you the money, Pete, and then you've given the money to the builder. Um, and in that case, it probably sounds like you haven't used what I can call a construction loan. You've just gone and used equity in the house, or you've used your own savings, which or you've used the bank's equity out. So my, my, my biggest worry is here is when people are going through a construction and it's a costly one and they don't use a construction loan, they self-fund. And this is one of the risks that you have because the bank's not getting involved. And if the builder does want to run off with the money, you're the one left holding the, you know, the half finished product. So what will the bank uh, require in order to release money? So you know, in the past, you know, up to maybe just a few years ago, you know, banks would pretty much throw money at you if you had equity in your property. So if your property was worth, I love using round numbers, you know, a million dollars and your loan was say 300,000, you could easily go to a bank and say, look, I want to borrow up to 80%, which is 800,000. And then they would just give you that the difference there, which is 500,000 and give that money to you really without any questions. It would just say, well, if you want to use that equity, that's fine. Here you go. Now that was pretty much common practice across all the banks, um, you know, up to maybe two or three years ago. Um, now it's much harder to get cash out. You can't just borrow up to 80%. Um, you can at a few lenders, you know, but generally speaking, you know, banks will clamp down on it and they won't just give you the money unless you've got evidence on what you're going to use that for. But in the past, you could. So, you know, if, for example, you got that 500000 out, um, you could then go and spend 300000 or 400000 on a build and not really tell the bank because you had enough money to self-fund. Now, the problem here is, is that really you don't own the property. The bank owns the property. And, um, you know, they're the ones who have got the ownership. They're the ones who have got the title deed and the mortgage. Um and so really, you know, you should be getting the bank involved here. Now, if you don't and the bank find out about it, it's not going to be a good conversation. But if you don't get the bank involved and you do complete the renovation, it's generally fine because you've got a, an amazing asset now. It locks up. It's easy to sell on the market. And what you could do in that situation is just refinance from one bank to another bank and it would all be fine. The challenge comes, though, is when you run out of money 
um, or it doesn't go to plan. Like in this situation, um, you go to the bank in that scenario and you've got a half finished house, zero banks would look at you as a customer. Explain how a construction loan works. Yeah. So with a construction loan, um, basically what you're doing is you're saying to a bank, look, I want to do a renovation to my property. And what the bank will do is go, that's fine. We want to lend you the money, but we want to be involved in the process. So what they'll do is they'll value, once you've got council approval and you've got your DA, you then go to a number of builders, you get a fixed price building contract, and that is to complete all the work and it's a fixed price. Now, builders, good builders will be used to this process. And what they'll do is they'll stage the construction, usually in five stages, sometimes six. And they'll say, look, if it's a $500,000 build, when we hit stage one, we'll get 100,000. When we hit stage two, we'll get another 100,000. Now, the bank's involved with this process and agrees to it. And then what the bank will do is look at what is this property going to be worth post renovation. And if that property is, you know, post renovation is going to go from a million to 1.8 million, they will generally lend 80% on what it's going to be worth at the end, which is 80% on 1.8 million. Now, if you've got the equity to do that and fund the renovation, they're happy. Banks will do it. Now, it'll cost you probably, you know, one to two thousand dollars because you have to do a number of valuations through the process and the bank will charge you for that. But what you what you do have here though is you have the bank as an independent third party and they're the ones who control the money. Now, if a builder calls you and says, look, I want my money, you say, well, you've got to satisfy the bank's conditions and the bank will give you the money. Now, what if if you do get this problem where you know the you're having delays or what and you having you don't have any problems with the money because the bank's the one controlling it. Now, in this situation, the bank wouldn't have given the builder the money unless they were happy with where they were up to, and so you don't really pay for work until it's done, and so it really protects you. And if if there's any problems with the build, like as a blowout of costs, or you know you have weather or anything that you you know you found something in the dirt that you were not meant to dig up or something like that, um, you know, the bank's involved and the bank will want to work with you to get the development finished. But if you self-fund, the bank won't want to work with you. So I think it's like anything to do with property. There's so many more risks than most of us realise. I think when we're going to renovate a property, you think, okay, it was just simple. I've got to find a builder and and, uh, contract. Okay, that's great. Um, you know, and so therefore the best way to avoid this happening, and we'll get back to what you do if it does happen in a minute, but the best way is to avoid it. And yep. how do you avoid it? And one way um, Chris was just saying there was obviously getting a construction loan and making sure the bank is involved in the process so that money isn't released to the builder until various milestones have been completed. Um, there is still... There is risk in that, even so, because, you know, I've certainly heard stories of, of, for instance, when the builder has purchased a whole bunch of of goods, for instance, or materials, and so they provide evidence of that, they get paid for that, and they have that stuff or those materials not necessarily stored on site, but off site. And so they bought it, they bought it for you, they're storing it themselves off-site, like not on your property, and then they take off and they've got all your materials and, you, you you know, it could be white goods, it could be a whole bunch of stuff, it could be a whole air conditioning unit, it could be, you know, your kitchen appliances, it could be all of that. So there are definitely things that can go wrong, even when you've got the bank involved. So that's one way to mitigate or, yep. or to limit that risk. And I think what's really important, um, I would engage... Uh, a good architect, I mean, whoever did your plans, you know, mm. if you've got someone who's really good, 
for starters, um, then they should be able to recommend builders that they've worked with and that they know have good reputation and yep. also that they have a continuing ongoing relationship with. So that's one way to limit the chances of it happening. But certainly a hell of a lot of due diligence needs to be gone into with builders because there, you know, there is the potential for that to happen. And, and certainly I've, ha- I've heard of it happening often enough mm. to know it's not that rare. And so your Google reviews, I mean, that's, you know, it sounds trite, but the reality is a builder that has been around for a long time in the same entity for a long time has got a lot more chance of actually not running off with your money than someone who's just set up recently or potentially has been running a whole bunch of Phoenix companies over the mm. years. So longevity of of operations and, and their business is a really important thing to look for. Certainly you don't want one who's going to resist signing a fixed price contract with you. You know, anybody who resists or tries to talk you out of certain things, um, you know, the alarm bells need to go on and get a lawyer to look at that contract. Don't just sign a contract thinking that you just have to sign it as it is. You know, get it checked by someone who specialises in, you know, this this area of law as well. Um, ask to go and see examples of their work. You know, say, can I go and look at a house that you've built recently? Can I meet the owners? Can I talk to them? You know, and make sure they're not related. <laughs> you know, um, but there are certainly... Lots and lots of due diligence that you can do yourself to satisfy yourself that you're not going down this path with that type of builder. Because the thing is, once again, let's just go back to that. There is more risk than you realise. So just be respectful of that. Take your time. Don't rush. Like anything to do with property, there's always more risk than we realise. And so it's all around what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So so just be aware of that and then you're going to be less likely to get in this situation. But once again, so what can Pete do if, he, if someone has run off with his money? What I would do, Pete, is I think you need to take, you know, serious action here and I'd be getting, you know, the best place is getting legal advice on your situation. I'd be documenting absolutely everything that has happened. Um, You know, I would be going to the police. I'd be putting a police report in. Um, You want to be making sure that you're taking this serious. If they feel like that, you you know, you're not going to keep chasing for the money, then, you know, they're not going to then just give it back to you. So, you know, you can go to Fair Trading. You know, there are websites. We'll put some links in the notes, you know, websites where you can lodge complaints about builders. You can talk to the Masters Builders Association, et cetera. Um, you know, there's lots of things you can do, but you really need to take proactive and you really need to get legal advice ASAP before it, you know, starts to tick away. So I hope you get that sorted out, Pete. In fact, I hope you've already got it sorted out before this episode even airs. So our third question is from Kaiman. Now, this is a long one and it's a scary one. So just bear with me while I while I read it, okay? So he says he, that, uh, this is from Kaiman. I was recently contacted by my financial planner of five years to see if we could catch up for any investment portfolio review. Sounds like a good idea, but he was surprised. After five years, I was a bit worried though, isn't it, Chris? Um, I was surprised to hear from them as they'd never really kept in touch with me during my five years with them. As they knew I'm keen to get into property investment, they told me about a great opportunity to invest off the plan in an apartment development in one of the major capital cities in Australia. And when I met with them, this investment opportunity was understandably the main subject for discussion. The chance to get into a development like this in an area that was about to grow got my attention. 
My alarm bells began to ring when I discovered that I was asked to make a decision as soon as the apartments were sell because they were selling fast. And if I wanted to invest in this development, I was going to be getting one of the last properties. I was provided with strong, robust, rock solid, historical financial statistics for this particular developer in this capital city. He was based, sorry, I was basically told, I'm reading this from Kyman. I was basically told that it was a set and forget investment. And by, by the time the development will be completed, my property will be positively geared as property values will rise during construction and the rental income will cover the cost. If I was keen to proceed, I need to provide a small deposit as a show of interest, etc., etc., etc. Now, it does go on and it talks a lot about the pressure to commit, you know, this, this manufactured scarcity, i.e. one of the last, everyone else has been sold, um, you know, Kaima mentioned selling the sizzle and he's developed, it was demonstrated how the developer and their relationship with the capital city had reaped rewards for investors that took up opportunities. And it's also using the language of opportunity rather than I'm trying to sell you something, you know. Now, he went and met with this planner. He got to the point of where they said to him, you can put down a deposit, it's refundable. So he's thinking, you know, I can get out, I can get out, I can get out. Now we've talked about the um, the consistency effect in a lot of what we in a lot of our episodes. And once you start down this path, it's really difficult to get out of this path. So his his final question is does he speak to a conveyancer about this contract or would other professionals like CPAs, mortgage broker or buyers advocates be able to assist me? What do you reckon about that one, Chris? Oh, it makes my stomach turn. Um, you know, you do mention in the, in the question a lot of the time is my financial planner, my financial planner, my financial planner, and um, get a new financial planner. And that's not because I'm a financial planner. Um, these are the financial planners that I can't stand. And, you know, and if there are, um, you know, unfortunately, I've, I've got a client at the moment and um, he's been a client for about oh, three years, but when I met him, he had a financial planner and he's a friend. And uh, so he, he engaged me for his property side. You know, we bought a house and, you know, I've talked him through how to upgrade into another house. And, um, you know, his other financial planner does his super and he's done his insurance. And I'm kind of, haven't really met this guy. He's kind of mentioned that he had him. And, um, you know, then all of a sudden he's, I go sit down with him and his financial plan has given him a statement of advice and he should go invest in property. And, now he's introducing him to this company that sells these developments and they're being really pushy and trying to get him to buy these townhouses. And um, it's really not good, you know, and, and the, the, you know, in this situation, you should be running you, your senses, your gut is telling you that you need to run, um, you know, and so you need to listen. And unfortunately, in these situations, we don't listen to our gut. We, we can see all the warning signs. We know they're being pushy. We know they're, um, even their line, oh, you can buy one of the last in the blocks. That's actually not a good thing. If you're buying a development, you want to be the first person buying the block, <laughs> yes. um, buying the best one in the development. Uh, and they're trying not to the sell. Not the leftovers. Not the leftovers. <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, there's so many things in this situation that just make my stomach turn. But really, run, run, run. Um, this, this financial advisor is not a financial advisor. They have no idea about property. And secondly, they've got, have not got your best interest at heart. They are getting a huge clip when they recommend this property. And I think. That's the point. Now, if you listen to the episode we had with Bryce Holdaway, which was all about property spruikers, and, and Bryce talked about spruikers that talked to him, and, and he's met more of them than I've met, earning seven figures. That means in excess of a million dollars per annum on kickbacks, that is commissions from developers for these sorts of properties that they're referring to their clients. Okay, there is not enough 
money left in most of these for the actual client, the investor, to make any money themselves. So the people making the money are with the lowest amount of risk really are the advisors, and I use that word advisedly, who are recommending it. Okay, so the very first question you need to ask any planner or accountant or mortgage broker who is recommending that you buy brand new property is who is paying you? Yeah. How much are you getting paid to recommend this to me? And let me tell you, things are changing and mortgage brokers are now getting their real estate licenses so that they can recommend this crap to you. Yeah. And they are making well, Chris gets offered this all the time, so he can sell some absolute figures on this, but they're the ones making the money, not you. It's not an opportunity for them, for you. It's an opportunity for them to make money from you. Yeah, you're talking anywhere from, you know, 5 to 15% commission. So, you know, I've had it on all different scales. Um you know that as you're listening to this podcast that it's something that we, you know, <laughs> it's always an interesting conversation. But, you know, I'm a prime target for them when they think, oh, you know, they're doing their LinkedIn search or they're looking for businesses online. Oh, this guy works, he's a mortgage broker and he's a financial planner. Oh, he's perfect. He'll, he'll sell our property. Um, they obviously don't read any of your posts. <laughs> they don't read and they don't. But, you know, and it, it, it's pretty scary. So, you know, in this client that I'm talking about, I said, just ask them back, are they getting paid? And as a financial planner... He has to, he or she has to disclose what they're getting paid, who it's from, and it has to. And so you need to be asking those questions. And if they are getting paid. And also ask them early on. Mm. Don't wait until the end where they go, oh, by the way, is a disclosure. Mm. Because you're committed. You're committed emotionally, mentally, and, and possibly a little bit financially by the time they do that. So ask straight up, why are you recommending this to me? What's in it for you? Yeah, and and you might be in your head thinking, okay, well that's right. He's doing a job. He's he's helping me. He deserves to be, he deserves to be paid. No, 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 no. The financial advisor doesn't deserve to be paid to introduce you to a developer because they're not looking out for your best interests. No, you and know? you are the product. Yeah, you are the lead that they're being paid for. Yeah. It's not you being given advice, and that's a big, big distinction. Yeah, you ba- he's. You know, he, she's basically just passing you on to the first person who's going to give them a commission. Now, they're not being an advisor here. They're not going out in the market and looking at all the established property. They're just referring it to the developer that's going to give them a commission. Because if they had done their numbers yeah. properly, they would never recommend that as an advisor because they no. don't stack up. So any data that is provided that, that gives you confidence that it's a good investment is pure marketing spin, pure mm-hmm an utter marketing spin. And I don't know how much more clearer I can say that. Well, exactly. The property market's unregulated, right? So, you know, and it's amazing how you can make a beautiful document. You can make it sound amazing. Um, You know, you can put amazing renders on it. Uh, it, It it can say whatever it wants, really. And no one can, you can't ever go back and say, you told me X, Y, and Z, and it's going to look like this. And it doesn't. Good luck trying to fight that. And the thing too is what what I know a lot of people that fall prey to this, what they don't realise, it feels and sounds to them like it's not, there's no risk. Mm. And the reason they think it's not risky is because it's not costing them anything on a monthly basis. Like, yep. you know, so at, at the end of the day with negative gearing and, and you know, the rental guarantees and, and um, you know, we can use the equity in your property and refinance this and do this and all this clever sort of structuring around all that. And so therefore it's not actually going to cost you anything and you get to have an investment. Isn't that a great idea? And you're sitting there nodding, nodding, nodding because they use NLP on you quite often. And so you're nodding and they're mirroring you and all of a sudden you, you're swept along and 
and your perception is that you're not taking any risk and why isn't everyone doing this? Yeah, and they keep saying tax, tax, tax. You've got a tax problem. Now, you know, look at your group certificate, look at your pay slip, how much tax are you paying, you know, and um, what they'll then do is, you know, don't you want some of that tax back, you know? Don't you want to be doing something for your future and don't you know that if you buy something new, you can have a huge tax deduction with depreciation and... Um, and this is kind of the sales pitch. It's all about solving a tax problem. Now, reframe that in your mind. If you're paying a lot of tax, income tax, it means you're earning a lot of money. It's a good problem to have. Now, can you invest and potentially get some of that tax back? Yes. Okay. But you then need to go, instead of compound the, the so-called problem and buy a poor asset, go and buy one really good one and you can still get a you know, a tax saving. So you may not get the depreciation, but depreciation is, is a false reality anyway, because the only way you get depreciation is if you buy something that is actually depreciating and losing value. So the thing is that if you are buying for negative gearing and that's, that's, you know, the sprookers are going to go, they're going to go nuts. They're going to have a field day if labor, um, become government this year and then get through their change to negative gearing, they are going to have – Spruik is going to love it because they're going to be running around pushing brand new property to everyone who's not realising the dangers and not realising that in order to make negative gearing work for you – the property needs to go up in value. So there is historical data to demonstrate that you are more likely to lose money if you buy brand new than make it, right? And I say more likely because I'm not saying everyone loses money, but you are much more likely odds on to lose money. Therefore, there is no benefit in negative gearing, none whatsoever. So we just want to be super clear on that. So um, thank you. I feel you. like we're pre- we are. And I, I do feel like we're preaching to the converted. If you have listened to a lot of our episodes, I think like you guys have. You know, I think you have really understood this. My worry isn't is that you know your friends and your families yeah, yeah. and your brothers and sisters and your parents are buying investment properties in their fifties and you know it. This, it people around you in your circle, your colleagues that you sit next to, your boss will be going out and doing these things. They're not as educated as you are because you're self-investing in yourself now. And if you do see people doing this, I can urge you, please just stop them and just ask them to say, maybe even listen to us. Share this episode. Or whatever it is. I mean, it's, but that's really, you know, I think if you are educated, I feel like, you know, you have got a responsibility in some way just to help people that you care about. Make sure they don't make these mistakes. So true. So our fourth and final question is from Nathan, and it's one that Chris is going to answer because it's right up his alley, okay? So one of the things that hasn't yet been covered is investing in property on the share market. For example, listed industrial REITs. What's an REIT? A REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. REIT. Uh, investing in property groups such as like Mervac, McGrath, Stockland. Uh, Nathan feels that the podcast has covered residential property and other strategies, but has largely left this area alone. And he was wondering whether Chris might be able to find someone or share his own experiences in advising clients on property in the share market. Uh, Nathan says he's personally invested and made a reasonable amount of money in this area, but still has a lot to learn. And from his experience, it's also quite different in that the barriers to entry and the high entry costs aren't there. Cash flow income is possible. Investing in one property trust gave an income return between 75 and 15% depending on when the investment was made and capital growth was also achieved. It could also cover why investing in a real estate agency such as McGrath wasn't such a great idea at $2.10 now that the share price is around $0.35 cents, and why investing in a business is different to investing in a direct property. 
Great question, Nathan. I think it is definitely one of our gaps on our program. And we did talk a little bit about commercial in an episode before this. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess around, you know, commercial REITs, if you go back in time and, you know, this is what's interesting about investing is things always change. And you look at 2008 and 2009, these are the type of investments that got hit the hardest. Okay. So they, you know, yes, the market and they're looking amazing right now because we're having a, a shortage of supply of offices and, you know, very low interest rates and lots of investment and fund flows. And, you know, so, you know, the, the returns on these from a capital value point of view, not only are you getting a high yield, but you're also getting ridiculous returns from a capital point of view. And so the market has been, you know, completely perfect for these type of investments. You know, but the, things don't always go like they have in the past. And, you know, if there is a bit of a downturn in the market, higher interest rates, um, you know, then these values of these properties can easily fall. So not only are you getting a high rent, but now you're getting capital value falls. And so, you know, you do need to bear in mind that they're not really risk-free investments. Got smashed off the GFC. Yeah, like we're talking, you know, some a lot of the funds actually closed and you lost all your money. Um, and But generally speaking, you know, you're talking 50 to 70% drops in, in prices. And because they're very illiquid assets, the last thing these funds want is a what you call, you know, basically like a bank run. It's called a fun run. And basically what happens is everyone starts selling and these funds can't sell these assets. And if they have to sell them to give you your money, they have to take bargain prices. And trying to sell a $100 million shopping center in the middle of a GFC, you're going to get how many people can afford to buy it? Not many. How many people want to buy it? Not many. And so that $100 million shopping center sells for you know $30 million because the fund has to sell because they have to give you the money. And so in a lot of these funds, they'll put what you call a fund freeze in and you can't get your money until normality returns. And how long is that? Well, we don't know. And so that might have been from 2008 to 2013 till you can even get access to your money. And so these, these real estate investment trusts are not without their risk. If you're a young person, you're going to have to take that money from somewhere. Now, if you're taking that money from the bank account to invest it, your opportunity cost isn't that much because you might be only getting 1% or 2% interest and you have to pay tax on that anyway. So, you know, that's not a big deal. But if you've got a home loan, generally speaking, you're going to, your option is either pay off the home loan at four or 5% after tax guaranteed return by just paying off your home loan um, or go invest into a property trust. Now you have to be getting four or 5% after tax to be profitable, to be winning. And so you have to get a decent return every year to make it even better paying off your home loan. Or your other option could be putting more money into your super. Now, the tax savings on that are much better than the potential small returns that you're going to get on a commercial real estate trust. So, you know, from a strategy point of view, um, you have to really, you know, be worried about it for young people. Where these things can make a lot of sense is if you're in retirement and you're in a, you know, a pensioner, and not a pensioner, but you've got a self-managed super fund or something like that, and you want income. So you want something that's going to provide you with an income. And it can be part of a diversified strategy and you could be putting some part of your self-managed super fund into something like this um, because A, you really want income and generally that income is paid tax-free because you've got it in a self-managed super fund. So they're perfect for that stage of life, not to be all your money in there. If you're in your retirement, don't be putting all your money in these trusts because they can go horribly wrong. 
And then the second part of the question is is about rather than investing in real estate trusts, what about investing in real estate companies? Now, Nathan mentions Mervac and Stocklands um, and also McGrath. And I, there's two different types of properties there. Mervac, Stocklands are developers and, you know, very large developers as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and look, we'll tackle McGrath separately because as an agency, that's, that's a completely different kettle of fish here. But what are your thoughts on, say, investing in sort of large developers like your Mervax in Stocklands? When you're buying shares, shares are carefully priced. They're, you know, you might think that the market's not, you know, sane, it's volatile and it's going over the place. It's You've got so many participants in the share market. It's actually so carefully priced based on all the information that's out there. It's very hard to say that the stock market's undervalued or overvalued. It's valued what it needs to be valued based on the current realities of the world. So when you think like that, you look at shares a bit differently and you think, well, it's not cheap or expensive. It's actually just fair value. Now, where it goes in the future is unknown. So when you're buying you know, shares of development companies, if that share price, that share price is usually ahead of time. So it's based on, it's basically saying, well, you know, in the future, we think that this company is going to make X profits and it's going to be in, in this is how much it's going to make over the you know next few years. And so they're kind of already ahead of the market. So before the market even drops, the prices of Mervac and Stockland and things like that will probably drop before the property market drops. And so you really need to be careful when you're investing in these companies. You need to basically be buying before a boom. And you need to be selling out, you know, a number of years before the boom ends. Otherwise, these companies, you know, have, you know, huge losses that, you know, haven't been factored into the future growth. So you're saying their share their share price is, is pegged to the property market because of their exposure to development. Because also they are multi-faceted um, companies as well. I mean, like, for instance, there's diversification within them. I mean, Stocklands, for instance, are into shopping centres as well, right? Yeah, so, and aged care and things yeah, like that. Yeah. They will. But, you know, depending on the different type of developer you're looking at, I guess it's how much of that is residential mm. and, you know, and how much is that going to be, you know, Stockland sell a lot of land release sites. So if we and, had... And I should I should just hazard too, we, we haven't looked particularly into Stocklands and Mervat when we're talking here. The, this conversation is very, very general principles around other ways to invest in property other than in direct residential property? Yeah. I mean, like as an example, I mean, Stockland's share price, you know, who are a big developer, um, you know, they were $5, you know, in 2017 when the boom was happening, right? And mm. the boom hadn't finished, well, it started to finish at the end of 2016, 17. That share price dropped to $3.50. So to actually have made money in Stockland, when you wanted to buy Stockland was in 2011 for, for $2.70, $2.80, and then sold it at the height of the boom in middle of 2016 for over $5. Now it dropped to, you know, $3.50 and it's probably about $3.80 now. So, you know, you've got to be really careful. You know, you have to really be ahead of the boom and the bust. And I think what's important there is that if you have invested in residential real estate outside of the share market, then if you are then going to be investing in the share market, maybe you need to diversify yourselves and not actually be buying shares that are going to be um, as uh, susceptible to movements in residential real estate as the rest of your portfolio. So that diversification piece comes in there as well. Um, just 
one little side on McGuire and McGuire listed, oh, God, when was it 2015, 2000, I can't remember now. And um, it's sort of interesting. I always thought it was an interesting um, idea of listing a real estate agency because if you ever if you own a real estate agency and you go to the bank and you say, right, I, I want to um, borrow money against the value of my business and they look at your business and go, right, well, what's your rent roll worth because that's the asset in your business, right? Um, real estate agencies typically are not valued on their sales um, figures, they're valued on the rent roll. And so how the hell, I could never quite understand, you know, and I didn't buy any shares in McGrath, I didn't even look into it. Um, but I could never really fully understand what the pitch must have been to the share market, to buyers, um, because the value is in the rent roll. You know, and that's when you're going to be cold and hard about it. If I went to buy somebody's real estate agency, I'm only going to pay for that. I'm not paying for anything else. I'm not paying for their brand. I'm not paying for their shop front. I'll pay for the assets, right? There might be physical assets such as the building that they're in and the rent roll, though, is an asset. In terms of goodwill and all the rest of it, they're not termed or classed as assets with any value. So, you know, I think that was potentially one of the dangers and when I read quite a lot of uh, the press around why the prices plummeted, the, the, the sort of the blame was laid on, oh, well, because the property boom is over and they didn't uh, have the same sales turnover that was anticipated. And I'm like, well, why was that ever factored into the value of the business in the first place? Mm. I could never understand. I don't know. Did you look into that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty scary if you did invest in that IPO. Um, and this is one of the, the problems with IPO. A lot of it's, um, you know, and John McGrath would have done really well when he sold a portion of his business onto the stock market. I mean, you look at the numbers now. He said 35 cents. It's now 28 cents. Like, so even if you thought, oh, McGrath's going to turn around at 35 cents, well, you've now just lost 20% of your money. So it's it's pretty scary. And, you know, in the, the day, it's a brand, it's a business, and, you know, it will do well in booms and it won't do very well in busts. And, um, you know, it's going to take a long, you know, a hard road to turn that around, I guess. So there you go. We've just uh, wrapped up our four first listener questions in a Q&A episode. So we hope that you found it valuable. We want to encourage you to send us more questions. Um, we do have some more questions on other topics and we're going to have to get some other experts in to make sure that we can give you some great answers and, and increase all of our learning. So once again, We'll put the links in the show notes for anything that we've mentioned here. Uh, don't forget, you can go back to episode one and you can download our free checklist on behavioural biases and how they impact your decision making around property and at auction. And remember to get in touch. We'd love to hear what your biggest aha moment has been from this episode. Go to theelephantintheroom.com.au. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Please join us for our next episode when we interview Nerida Connorsby, the Chief Economist for the REA Group. Now, you may know realestate.com.au. I'm sure you will if you've been an active buyer. And so the REA Group actually own that. Now, Nerida, in her job, has access to an amazing array of data. A lot of the pricing data and sort of general economic stuff that, you know, everyone has access to. But in particular consumer data, the actual data in terms of what buyers are doing online, how they're searching, what they're looking for, you know, what areas are going up, what areas are going down, looking deeper into the data and also understanding that not everything you read is necessarily true and why you need to interrogate the data before you make decisions based on it. 
don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.